We are continuing the Gospel of Matthew. If you uh, were wondering where we went over the last couple of months, we've had the, our booth redone and all our uh, equipment redone, and it's been a good thing. It's not only is it a better quality, but we also realize there are some safety issues which we managed to uh, avoid uh, because we redid everything, and so we're thankful to everyone that was part of that. And uh, if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, we are going to be going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in chapter 27. So several years ago, uh, about 15, 16 years ago, uh, in the small town that Cindy and I lived in, we had a, a day's notice that Bill Clinton was coming to town. And this was, uh, for those of you who don't know, Bill Clinton was... in the 1990s, and he, uh, it was a surprise he would come to our town because our town was very, very small. In fact, I think someone must have made a mistake somewhere, or he was in trouble with someone, and they exiled him to this little tiny town uh, in Oregon to, to give a speech, and we really had about one day's notice. It was, that's why I think that it was a, a very much a, kind of a, a second thought to someone who organized this. And the town, because the town that we lived in, there were two towns that were together, Monmouth and Independence. And, one of, and Monmouth had a little university. And when all the students were in place and everyone was home, it was only about 25,000 people in these two towns put together. So they weren't big towns. And the university had a nice auditorium, but it, it was booked. It was booked for a children's a community play, a children's community play. And uh, the community wasn't going to move the children out of the auditorium just because the former two-term president was coming to town. So they had him speak at a, at a sports arena, a sports hall on the university campus that had to be about 300 years old. I mean, it was old, and it smelled like sweat and socks. It was awful. It was, and it was a hot summer day. Whew. But... I wanted to go uh, because, you know, as you know, I'm kind of a history geek, and Bill Clinton, regardless of what you think about him, was a, a figure in history. So Cindy and I went and stood in line to go uh, hear the, pre the former president speak. This is when Hillary Clinton was running for the Democratic nomination for president the same time Barack Obama was. So this was a long time ago. Barack Obama, as you know, won that nomination. So we were standing in line, Cindy and I were standing in line, and, and really what was more interesting at the end of the day than, than seeing the former president was the, were the people standing in line, because you had all kinds of different people who were there for all kinds of different reasons. And uh, for example, we happened to be standing right next to the Young Republicans Club. Uh, they were standing in line, and their whole, their whole plan was to go into the speech and disrupt it. And the whole time we're standing in line, the, the one guy, this young man, I uh, was just heckling everybody in the line, making fun of them for being a bunch of bleeding heart liberals. He even attacked me because uh, he didn't know who I was. Uh, but I think his girlfriend somehow knew who, who we were because she was very embarrassed by the whole thing. And when I told him, you know, I'm actually the pastor of the Southern Baptist Church in town, which is hardly a very liberal uh, a church, uh, they eventually ended up just leaving. They just left the line and, and went home. Uh, I don't think that was the reason. I think as they got closer to the line, they, they lost their nerve when it came to the idea of trying to heckle. Uh, 
But then you also had people there, like there's this one guy running around with a bunch of Hillary Clinton buttons on, campaign buttons, and he was shouting out all kinds of slogans and everything that they talked about even today. But at least he was entertaining because he was also juggling while he was doing it. And so that was entertaining to watch. You had a lot of people who were there. You just kind of picked up in conversation. They weren't there because they liked Hillary. They were there because they just wanted to see the former president speak, and they were more fans of him than they were of her. So I thought that was interesting. And then he gave his speech, and then he left town, and it was as if it never happened. There was like one article in the local newspaper that talked about that the former president had come to town and gave a speech, and then that was that. It was as if it had never happened. People didn't talk about it in town. There was no talk about it in the coffee shops. It was almost as if it was all just kind of something that never took place at all. And I found that interesting because for a town as little as this one was, this should have been a big deal, but it really didn't amount to very much. And history is kind of that way. Sometimes things that we think are going to be a big deal, they're not really a very big deal. And then things that we think really aren't going to be all that important, they end up being very, very important. But regardless of whether or not an event is historically important or not, there's always people who are witnessing the events of history. People who are common people, people like me, people like you. And it's these common people that are witnesses to history. And sometimes they're even participants in the history. Sometimes it's willingly they're participating. Sometimes it's unwillingly. You know, there's a lot of people in Ukraine right now who are unwilling participants in, uh, in this war that are going on. They didn't ask for this. They were just in their villages, and all of a sudden, one army comes rolling through one way, then one army comes rolling through the other way, and they're just kind of in the middle of it. They're witnesses to history, sometimes unwillingly, sometimes willingly. And you never really know where this history is going to take us until time begins to tell. So in Matthew's Gospel, we've talked about that in chapter 26, Matthew kind of begins to take a different way of approaching Jesus. Instead of Jesus being the one doing all the talking, he's still at the centerpiece of the story, but Matthew begins to focus on the people around Jesus. He focuses first on you know, the, the woman that anoints him with the perfume, and then there's this discussion between uh, the disciples and Jesus, all the way to Pontius Pilate, we looked at last week, uh, and his wife, you know, who has this dream about Jesus. The, the, the conversation is more around Jesus. And as we come to the cross, Matthew does the same thing. Matthew focuses more on the people that are around Jesus, and they're the ones who do most of the talking. Jesus has one line, one line in Matthew's gospel on the cross. This is a big difference from, say, Luke's gospel or John's gospel, where Jesus talks quite a bit during the whole crucifixion uh, time. Even when he's going on the road to crucifixion, there's one of the gospels he talks to the women along the way, and he has a conversation with the thieves on the cross. None of that takes place in Matthew. Matthew is all about the people around Jesus. So what I want to do today is I want to look at these groups of people and just kind of discuss all the different kind of populations that they represent and ask, do you see yourself in any of these? And also maybe, do you see some of the people you know in these people groups that are around the crucifixion? And I want to say from the outset, this is a very interpretive sermon today. Oftentimes I, I try and go into the, the history and the ties to the Old Testament. There's one place we'll do that today. But uh, this is highly interpretive. And I want you to know that so that if you don't necessarily put the people in the same categories that I'm putting them in, that's okay. This is, 
This is just kind of a, a looking at this thing, looking at the events of it, and seeing who these people represent. Who are the people whom Christ died for? Who are the people who put Christ to death? So let's begin. Matthew 27, starting at verse 27, it says this. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail the king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. And they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. They led him away to crucify him. Who are these people? These are the people that are kind of the brutes of the world. You know, there are folks in the world that are pretty just brutish. They're the ones that they enjoy causing pain. They're really sort of all about themselves. They're the folks that are the bullies of the world. The people that are brave as long as they're within a crowd of like-minded people. And in that bravery, they'll often single out someone that they can either crush physically, spiritually, emotionally. They're the brutes of the world, the bullies. They're the ones that they really don't know what it is that they believe, but they'll follow that crowd. And their arrogance is oftentimes something that is a bit breathtaking. In fact, these are the ones of whom I, I kind of expect Jesus uh, had this psalm go through his mind. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise perseveres my life. The arrogant mock me without restraint, and they do not turn away, and I will not turn away from your law. These are the folks that they love the music which mocks Christ, the entertainment that belittles faith. They'll shout down with slogans anyone that tries to reason with them. They're the brutes of the world, and there's a lot of them out there. Then the passage continues. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, Simon of Cyrene is one of these guys that I think the church actually knew. I think he became part of the church later on because there's a reference to him in Mark which makes it sound like people should know who he is and who his family is. Mark says this, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way uh, in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Just the way that Mark refers to him, the father of Alexander and Rufus, like we should know who that is. And I think the early church did know who that was. I think when, they, when, the, when Mark puts out these names, and Mark is actually probably writing, we think most likely he's writing Peter's account. So that's one of the reasons why it's, uh, it's this first-hand account. Peter would know who Alexander and Rufus are. And in fact, Rufus is mentioned later on in one of the epistles. Uh, we don't know, there's not the, the same connection make, made to Simon of Cyrene, but it seems to be there. Simon of Cyrene, we don't really know that much about him, but we've always kind of considered him one of the good guys. And he does seem to be a pretty decent guy. But he's one of these good people who are still sinners. He's a good person. But he still is a sinner. 
He's the kind of guy that if he were to die without knowing Christ, which I don't think he did. I think, I think Simon was known to the church, and I think that he'd become involved. That's why his sons are known. But if he were to die without knowing Christ, he's the kind of person, and you've probably been to funerals like this, that they say, this is a good person. If the good Lord doesn't let Simon into heaven, then I don't know who's making it into heaven. And the people saying that don't realize how close to a truth that they're speaking. Because it's not about goodness that brings us into the possibility of heaven. It's about our relationship with Christ. And so he kind of represents to me these folks who are good people, decent people, willing to go out of their way. Because it was no honor back then to carry the cross. We look at it now as a place of honor, but in the moment that this was happening, Jesus is being mocked. It's actually kind of dangerous to get involved with this. You know, to be pulled out of the crowd and being told to carry that cross, carrying it for a criminal that people are spitting and throwing at and mocking, it was a dangerous place. But he goes, and he does it. He doesn't go. He's forced to do it. But then I think in that, he didn't run away from it. He's a good person. But as nice as he is, as willing as he is, he still is a man in need of a Savior. Then the scripture says, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. It was meant to be a painkiller, and so Jesus doesn't take it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, they being the soldiers, the brutes. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one to his right and one to his left. Now, Matthew does what Matthew always is doing throughout the gospel, where he inserts into the middle of a story something he finds important. And so he splits the story of the robbers, and we jump down to verse 44, which comes back to the robbers and says, In the same way the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. There's no, there's no reference in Matthew to the one uh, thief kind of having a change of heart. You know, when you enter your kingdom, Lord, remember me. Matthew doesn't, doesn't include that. Matthew includes some things that none of the other Gospels include, but he doesn't include some things as well. And I think he does this for a reason. Because I think these thieves are basically the people that go through life who are angry and are bitter, and they blame others for all their problems, and they will never take any accountability for their life and the decisions they've made right up to the day they die. They're pointing the finger at someone else. Have you ever met people like this? Yeah, they're, they're not fun to be around, are they? I, there was a guy that I knew when I was in Oregon. He was a talented musician, but he was a raging alcoholic, very irresponsible, had kids, would just leave them, leave the women and the kids, didn't support them. Eventually, when he, I, I visited him one time in the hospital because of his alcoholism, he ended up he was found uh, in the woods, almost dead, and they took him to the hospital. And the reason why I knew him is because there was a lady in our church that was, had been with him at one point. And the first thing he did was just start blaming everyone around him for his problems. I mean, as soon as he woke up and had the strength to do it. These are the kinds of people that every job they've lost, it's, it's their boss's fault. It's not their fault. And every broken relationship they have, it's their ex's fault. And, all the, and the kids that don't talk to them anymore because 
you know, he's never been in their life. Well, it's the kids being ungrateful. It's always everyone else's fault. And they're angry and they're bitter. And they keep this anger and this bitterness right up to the end. That's how I see the thieves, the way Matthew portrays them. Because they're, they're crucified with Jesus. They're dying. And yet they listen to the insults of others. And we'll, we'll look at, we kind of have to jump back after verse 44 and listen to what the insults were. And then they just repeat those insults. They're not very bright. But they're angry, and when they hear the insults of other people, they heap it on. Because you know what? Everything is God's fault, too. And if God does this to the Son of God, well, then God's even mean to God. And that kind of gives them a little bit of pleasure as they die angry. Jumping back now to the people that Matthew kind of splits the story about the thieves, and it's interesting, he chooses this group to split the story about the thieves says this, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Now, it's, it's, it's an interesting you know, literary tool that Matthew uses that he takes the, the account of the robbers, the thieves, and he puts these folks in between that account. He begins talking about them. Then he talks about these folks. Then he ends with the thieves. And who are these guys? These are the smart and educated people of the world who are too smart for God. You've run into these folks, and you see them a lot on the Internet nowadays. The, the, the YouTube kind of has thrown open the doors for anyone who has an opinion to put it online. And these are the folks that believe they have some kind of clever argument against God and that they're smarter than God. And anyone that follows Christ is just a, basically a superstitious idiot. But I've always been struck, I've always been amazed by how many very intelligent people, at least the people that the world sees as intelligent, know very little of biblical truth. I read a book, for example, there was a, there was a man several years ago that was kind of considered one of the big brains in the world named Carl Sagan. Have you ever heard of Carl Sagan, some of you? He has like 25 different PhDs. Uh, scientist, author, and he wrote this book called Contact. It's kind of a science fiction story. And in the book, either he does this deliberately or he doesn't know that he's doing it, which would show a shocking amount of ignorance for a person that's supposed to be as intelligent as he was. He misrepresents the gospel. He makes a mistake in what the gospel says. And apparently, Carl Sagan, nor his editors, either caught this mistake or they were willing to be disingenuous. I'm not sure which it was. I think they just didn't know any better. Very often, if you listen to comedians, I find comedians interesting to listen to. I disagree with them on almost everything they say. But there, is, there, is, uh, there are some similarities in, in kind of learning from people that, that speak for a living and are entertaining in their, in their ability to speak. And I'll often listen to them because sometimes they say things that are clever, I disagree with, but at least there's some cleverness. 
But almost every time they talk about Christianity, it is clear that they do not have a biblical understanding of Christianity. You listen to the things they say, what they're angry about. Most of the time they're angry at some kind of church tradition that they grew up in. And very often that church tradition is Catholicism. I'm not saying that to bash Catholicism. That's just where they tend to focus their anger. And they don't really realize that what they're saying is what they're complaining about is something that people who are biblical in our understanding of God would also say, yes, this was wrong. This teaching is wrong. But they don't understand that because they don't have a biblical understanding. So they think that that represents Christianity. And this happens a lot on the news as well. When you hear someone say, give some opinion about Christianity and you realize this person doesn't doesn't have a biblical understanding, even though they're considered the wise ones, the smart ones, the intelligent ones of the world. And these are the folks that they, they, they will have a logic that they think somehow paints Christ into a corner or paints Christians into a corner. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come now down off the cross and we will believe him. And they say that with this mocking intention as if their logic somehow proves that Jesus is not the Christ because he doesn't come down off the cross because they do not understand that if Jesus did indeed come down off the cross, if Jesus had said, you know what, enough of this. I'm getting off this cross. I'm not going to be mocked. You say I'm not the Son of God? Watch me now. If he had done that, then he would not have died for our sins. And if he didn't die for our sins, then in the proof that he was the Son of God to, to give uh, a proof to these folks here who are mocking him, thinking that they've logicked their way into this belief that he's not the Son of God, if Jesus had proven that, then we would all be doomed to hell. Jesus does not come down off the cross because he cannot. He doesn't come down off the cross because he chooses not to. Because he knows he has to die if we're going to have any hope at all. And so these guys finish the day thinking, uh-huh, we proved our point. He's not the Son of God because he didn't come off the cross without even realizing that if Christ had come off the cross, all of humanity would be doomed. They think they're too smart for God. And as a result, they end up showing their ignorance. And then the robbers, we meet them again. That's what comes out behind them. It says, the same way the robbers who were crucified also heaped insults on him. So the robbers heard these smart folks, and they just jumped on that boat, repeated the same things. And then we have this. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, in Aramaic. Jesus actually spoke Aramaic. He didn't speak Greek. He didn't speak Hebrew to the people. Hebrew was the temple language. Greek was kind of the common language, kind of like English is. But he spoke, his, he spoke most often in Aramaic, we believe, which is like the local language, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is actually a quote from Psalm 22. If you ever want to read it, it's an amazing psalm. When some who were standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. So immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. I'm calling these people the people who hope that Jesus is who he says he is. 
but they are reluctant to really trust him. They hope he's what he says he is. But they need just one more little personal miracle to really trust him and put their hope in him. And there's a lot of these folks in the world. They'll say, what do you think about Jesus? Well, he's a good man. What do you think? Do you think he's you know, son of God, savior? Oh, I don't know. Well, what would it take for you to believe in him? I don't know. Maybe if God did something kind of, he just let me know. Well, he did let you know. It's called the Bible. It lets you know who Jesus is. But because we tend to be a bit self-centered as human beings, we like to think, but, but I need a, a personal, special message from God. I need, I need to have that special feeling. I need to, to see something that happened to me, a miracle, just a little miracle, you know, just to make sure. Because I hope he's who he said he is. But I need a little more convincing. And these folks act like as if to accept Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross is somehow a favor to Jesus. There's a lot of these folks in the world. And then Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, and he gave up his spirit. So the one line Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew on the cross is, Ela, Ela, Lama Sabachthani. That's it. There's no more conversations. That's it. Because Matthew is more focusing on the people that are surrounding him. He gives up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of their tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, this is where Matthew, Matthew brings in some stuff that no other gospel brings in. And this is an example. The other example is Pilate, Pilate's wife having that dream that warns you know, Pilate not to have anything to do with this innocent man. That's only in Matthew. Matthew has a mystical sense to his gospel, which is, I think, oftentimes kind of overread. You know, we just kind of read over it. Because this is a strange thing, right? The tombs open up. And then uh, I was speaking with uh, Gary the other day, and he pointed out that, but it says that it wasn't until after his resurrection that these people also went into the holy city as if to give context to their resurrection. Jesus rose from the grave. They rose from the grave. And it's hard to really know what Matthew is trying, what point he's trying to get at here. But I think it has a lot to do with the vision of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet during one of the many times when Israel was just, you know, under a siege, under attack, you know, they had bad kings, bad queens, and Israel was kind of broken. And Ezekiel has this vision, and this is what the vision is. Ezekiel speaking, he says, Then he, being God, said to me, Son of man, in this case that just means human, he sees this valley of dry bones, and he says, These bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, speak to these bones. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will settle you in your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, 
and I have done it, declares the Lord. And in the vision of Ezekiel, these bones start to come back together. They start to, they start to have tendons grow back on them, and their muscles grow back. They come back to life. I think this is, this is one of the prophecies that's being referred to here when these tombs open up, that they are the ones coming back to life. They're the ones that died looking for their Messiah, looking for a place of hope, but they had died without seeing it happen. And so I'm calling these people the ones who have been faithfully waiting for their Savior. They're the ones who have been waiting, and they don't, really, they, don't, they don't need to be told who they are. They know who they are. They know that there are people in need of a Savior. They know that they're in need of grace. They're not really surprised by the generosity of God because they know God. It doesn't surprise them that God would be generous, that God would bring them new life and new hope. And they're also the ones that nothing can keep them from running to Christ. When the Messiah comes, they see them, see him, and they run to him. Not even the grave can keep them. I often wonder, like, if, uh, if in the Gospels... Simeon and Anna are these two old folks that see the baby Jesus. Remember that story that he's brought to the temple to be uh, dedicated? And they say they praise God because he allowed them to have a long enough life to see the Messiah. And they're old, so I expect they probably died soon after that. I always kind of wonder if they weren't part of this crew. They were longing for the Messiah. They knew the Messiah was going to come. They believed in God's faithfulness. And when they saw the infant, they, knew, they were able to say, now I can die happy. I always kind of wonder, were they part of this group? That when, the, when Jesus goes through the process of death and resurrection, they run to him. Then you have this group. When the centurion, and, and read this carefully, it says, when the centurion and those with him. So it's not just talking about the centurion. We tend to focus on the centurion, but it's also the soldiers with him. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified. They were terrified. It's a group. And exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. I feel this group represents those who have seen God move in their life. And they respond to that movement in faith. One of the more remarkable stories in my life that, that I've experienced kind of secondhand because the, the lady who experienced firsthand, she always related it to me, her name was Katie. And Katie really prayed hard for people to come to know the Lord. And I've told you about her before. She would kind of pray these prayers that almost felt like they were blasphemy because she'd say things like, Lord, Scripture says that you desire that none should perish, but a lot of people are going to hell, Lord. Don't know what you're doing about that. And she would like almost shame God in, in her prayers. And I, I was like, would scoot away waiting for the lightning to strike her. But she had an, she had an enormous amount of faith. And there's this story, I've told you about this story about baby Brian. Maybe some of you have heard it. But there's this baby that was born and he had a tumor uh, that was wrapped around his genitals and, and, his, and his thigh. And the doctors, she worked for a, a, a she actually worked for a pharmacist. But the, uh, she became aware of the situation that the doctors were thinking they were going to have to, in order to remove the tumor, they were going to have to remove the, the baby's genitals and they were going to do a sex change, try and just you know, make the best that they could out of this situation because it was either that or the baby was going to die. And it might, be, might even lose a leg. It was a pretty, pretty serious situation. And so she went, and this is probably unethical according to the laws of the medical community, but she found out who this family was, where they lived, and she went to their home and told them that she wanted to pray for this baby, baby Brian. And, uh, and they said, yeah, sure. So she began to pray for baby Brian, and she told us in the church, we need to pray for this baby. 
So we were praying for baby Brian. And when the doctors, about the day before, they were going to go do this massive, life-altering surgery, the tumor was gone. And the doctors had no explanation for it. And Katie had an explanation for it. You know, this is the hand of God. God moved in this family's life. Now, these, fam- these fa- people weren't Christians. And so she went to them and says, you must be just amazed at what's happened. They're like, yeah, it was really cool. She's like, God has moved in your family's life. Don't you want to start following him? And their answer was, well, that's nice of God. But no, not really. And it just blew her mind. She was so disappointed. And she came back and wanted me to explain all this, like as if you, know, you can explain what's going on in the heads. But it just blew her mind that this family could see the movement of God in their life in this powerful and profound way, which saved their baby's life, prevented their baby from having to be, go through a sex change, prevented their baby from losing its leg. And they just kind of went, meh. She could not get her head around that. How could people see the movement of God right in front of them and go, meh, that's nice. But I'm not going to alter my life in order to meet this God. These soldiers, the centurion is the one that kind of gets focused on, but it says the group around him, they did see this movement of God. They saw the, the earthquake. I, don't, I doubt that they knew the, the, the veil had torn in the temple, and they probably wouldn't understand the significance of that. They just saw the earthquake. They saw the sun go out, the black, turned black over the land for three hours or six hours. And... They came to the conclusion, this must be the Son of God. And we don't know in their little pagan Roman minds what exactly that meant. It probably wasn't a confession of faith in the way that we like to hear, a clear confession of faith, but they recognized the divinity of Christ. And give them credit for that. They go from being the brutes to a confession of some kind of faith. Surely this was the Son of God. So I think of these folks, they're the ones that, to give them credit, they did see God make a move in their life. They were part of it, and they responded to it, and they go from, at the best case scenario, which I hope for them, they go from being the brutes to being enlightened by the Spirit of God. They go from being the ones that that mocked Jesus on a knee, spat on him, to being ones that I hope we see in eternity have their knee before Jesus with all sincerity, claiming him to be their King of kings and Lord of lords. Finally, we have this group. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, mother, and then Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, which is John, James and John, just another way to say his name. And the mother of Zebedee's sons. Actually, no, it's James and Joseph, and then the mother. He's also, she's, oh, she's also the mother of Zebedee's sons. So they're, they're trying to explain there's two Marys here. There's actually three Marys in, in Jesus' life. His mom, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to them, to him, 
Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of a rock. So Joseph is thinking ahead here. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite of the tomb. Finally, we have the quietly faithful. And what I mean by quietly faithful, they're not, it's not that they are quiet about their relationship with Jesus. To their credit, Joseph of Arimathea, you know, he takes the, the risk of going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus, which is a risky thing because Pilate is the one that had condemned Jesus to death. To go to the Roman governor who had condemned Jesus to death and ask for a favor, that took some courage. And Pilate, to his credit, gives him the body so that he can be buried in an honorable manner. And then you have the two Marys watching from a distance. And I find that last, that last verse to be poignant when it says, Mary Magdalene and the mother Mary were sitting opposite the tomb. When I call these folks the quietly faithful, these are the ones, these are the people that are deep in their faith. They're not very showy. They're not very, they don't have a lot of charisma. They're not running around, you know, focusing attention upon themselves. They're just the ones who are the believers who go through life trying to do the best they can to glorify their Savior. They're kind of the backbone of most of civilization. The quiet folks, they just do their jobs and live their lives as best they can. Oftentimes, these are folks that are a little bit weary of the world, and they're hoping that something, somehow, maybe someone, can set this crazy world into some kind of order. And they live with a quiet dignity, even though they're often disappointed with what the world is around them. They sit quietly across the tomb from the tomb of hope, and they wait. But the important thing to remember about all these people, all these different types of people that are around the cross, is that they all need a Savior. It doesn't matter if you're the brute, or the, if you look at the brutes, or you look at the quietly faithful, or if you look at the Simon of Cyrene's, or the intelligent who think they're too smart for God. You have different levels of, you know, kind of badness among them. Like we always say, a sin is a sin to the Lord, and that's true. But, you know, I think we've all lived life long enough to know some people are worse than others. But they all need a Savior. Even the best of them need a Savior. No one is there at the cross able to say, and then there was those that Jesus didn't have to die for. Then there are those who are just fine in their own self-righteousness and perfection. That, those people aren't there. Everyone at the cross needed a Savior. And in the same way, everyone at the cross that came to accept Jesus as Lord would receive the same forgiveness. Just like everyone needs a Savior, regardless if you were the brute that was beating Jesus or you're, you're one of the, the people sitting quietly across the tomb, they all needed a Savior in that same way. They're all given the same amount of forgiveness. 
There's not a, well, you're forgiven more because you're a better person. You're forgiven less because anything than complete forgiveness is not enough. Because if we want to enter into the presence of a holy God, we have to be completely holy ourselves. So the forgiveness received by the brutes or from, to the brutes, those, if, if those centurions and soldiers in their confession, surely this is the Son of God, then carried on from that and came to the saving faith, their salvation, their forgiveness, even though they're forgiven for a lot more, is as complete as the forgiveness needed by Simon of Cyrene or Mary Magdalene. Their forgiveness is the same. And I want you to, to, to go walk away from this today. And if you, I think most of you here are believers. I'm looking out at the faces here, and it seems like I, I know most of you. But the question to ask yourself is, if you're not a believer, if you're, if, if you, do you see yourself as one of these people standing around Jesus? And if you do, ask yourself, where are you? Are you moved by what you're seeing on the cross? Are you moved by what's happening? Or are you like a lot of these folks that are witnessing the very word of God made flesh, dying for their sins and walking away from it going, eh. And I want you to think about the people that you might know that also fit into this. Because I can tell you, I can put names on almost every single one of these people groups. And I've told you some stories about some of them. I've seen all kinds of, I've seen these people. And I imagine you have as well. Do you pray for them? Or do you just go, well, they are what they are. And what they are is going to hell. So not going to think about it too much. Do you pray for them? Because you can't convince these folks. You can't walk up to the brutes and convince them to follow Christ. You can't walk up to the super smart and say, I can outsmart you, outlogic you. Because it happens all the time and it still doesn't move people. The only thing that's going to move them is the Holy Spirit. Do you pray for them? And I say that with as much conviction towards me as well. It's, it's easy for us as believers to stop praying for the people around us and just kind of be focused on our own spiritual walk with Christ. But let me encourage you and tell you this. Your spiritual walk with Christ includes praying for those that don't know him. It's not just reading the Bible every day. It's not just caring for the sick, or being nice to each other, or seeking to live under the, the, the understanding of your identity in Christ. It's also praying for those that don't know him. Because it says God's desire is that none should perish, but all would come to eternal life. But he places a lot of that upon us in, the, in that he allows us to be the hands and feet. We can't save anyone, but we can certainly pray. We can certainly care. And there's this partnership that God invites us into. And I have to admit, there are times I don't really fully understand it because it would seem to me a lot easier if God didn't involve fallen human beings in this whole plan because we tend to get in the way of it and screw the whole thing up. But he does. He invites us in. He invited Adam in. In the book of Genesis, he continues to invite us in. If you would be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. So, are you any of these people? Do you know any of these people? Then pray for them. And if you're one of these folks and you realize, I'm one of these folks, maybe you're the hopeful ones that are just needing that one more personal miracle. Maybe you realize, you know what? The miracle is that the Bible has survived all these centuries and the story is right there in front of me. Maybe I should accept the miracle that's right in my hands instead of looking over it for something else. Wherever you are in this, 
or whoever you know that's in this. Be in prayer so that their eyes would turn to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this part of our faith which we've heard. I mean, any of us that have been to Sunday school as kids or, I mean, we've heard the story of the crucifixion sometimes so often it's hard for us to still be shocked by it or moved by it. And yet it is still the central, one of the central points of our faith that you were willing to take upon yourself the nature of a human, a human who is going to be a servant to all. That the word of, word of God becomes flesh and dwells among us, the very character and nature. He who has had no sin becoming sin for us. That you would come, Lord, forgive us for the fact that sometimes we are still unmoved by it, even as believers. That Satan somehow dulls our senses and numbs our hearts. That we become so familiar with it that we think we understand something which is unfathomable, really. And Lord, we pray that if we find ourselves as one of these people standing around you, And if there's someone in here in the room today that realizes that they are represented there at the cross and yet have still not given their life to you, that they would recognize the folly of their decision so far and that they would give their life to know you and trust you and walk with you and receive from you the salvation which leads us into eternal life. And Father, we pray for the people that we know, and I think we all know people in some of these categories. Some of them are people we love. Some of them are people we don't particularly like at all, but we know them. And Lord, we pray that you would give us that conviction of heart, and I include myself in this. This is our prayer, not just a prayer for others. Our prayer. Give us that conviction of our hearts that we would pray for those that don't know you. That if we've given up praying for certain people, that maybe we'd reconsider that and start praying for them again. If there's people we just really don't like and we've just kind of set them aside because we really find it difficult within ourselves to forgive them enough to want anything good for them, may we remember that you died for the brutes as well as for the quietly faithful. And that we need to have your compassion. And Father, we do pray that that we would see movement in our life, that we would see people that we know and care about come to know you, that you would answer those prayers. We don't want to just pray for the sake of praying in order to check off a box of doing our duty. We want to see your move. We want to see your hand move. And if it moves, may we rejoice instead of just shrugging our shoulders and go, well, that was nice. May we rejoice in what you do. Acknowledge what you do. And follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.